Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Garrett Ingram. Garrett brings more than 20 years experience in pharmaceuticals and currently is the CEO of Zipla Therapeutics. Prior to her role at Zipla, she has been at various pharmaceutical companies in leadership roles. Garrett holds a Bachelor of Science degree from East Carolina University and a Master's degree in Public Health and Community Education from the University of South Carolina. She has also completed executive leadership programs in pharmaceuticals and leadership at Wharton School of Business and dedicates her free time to mentorship and making community impact. Hi, Garrett. Welcome to Woman to Woman. So excited to have you here today with us. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. So let's get started with all the way back. Childhood. How was your childhood? It's it's always a great question to reflect on where you come from. I think it's very important to know where you you came from and where you're going. So I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a small suburb of a beautiful town called Morristown, which was a 400-year-old Quaker town um, that was a, kind of idyllic. It's voted every year one of the best places to grow up in America with Main Street and churches and bakery. I'm a child of a first generation. My mother's from Italy. My father's uh, hails from another country, Alabama. Um, his family's all Scottish, but I always say it's like another world. And so I grew, I grew up with very diverse cultures and an immigrant family. So we always had um, different people coming in and out of our lives that we sponsored. And so our family's very large. You know, Italian families are very large. At different points in my life, I had family living with us. And I, I don't think I grew up in a typical American family because of that. So I started working at a very, very young age. I have an older sister and a younger brother. Started a lawn business in a, in a newspaper route um, at the age of 11 because I didn't want to wear the clothes my grandmother and my mother made. So I was taught at a very young age, if you want something, if you don't ASK, you don't GET. And if you don't do, you don't get. And that nothing was impossible. And if I wanted to look hip, slick, and cool at the time, and that was important to me, I made money so I could buy Levi's and, you know, whatever else. We wore bell bottoms back then. Um, but just grew up in this incredible place, but really had a very strong work ethic. And, you know, I really admire my parents. We, we were raised in a very nice area, but I never knew we had money because my parents never gave me cash. I always had to earn my cash. And um, it wasn't until I, you know, got older and went off to college did I realize how lovely my parents had provided for us. Um, they just taught us different principles. We weren't given everything. We had to work for everything we wanted. I remember having this discussion because all my friends got allowances. And I remember sitting my parents down and having this, you know, formal little meeting to, to, you know, declare that, you know, I have other people paying me to do the lawn, you know, up to $40 to cut lawns. And they weren't paying me anything. And it was kind of, I got the, the message that, you know, you park your feet under our table. We provide for you if you'd like a bill for your housing and this and that, that this is just part of contributing to a family. And so I didn't get an allowance. I didn't get any of that. And, uh, you know, I don't regret that. I think it actually made me want more things, work harder for things and be very deliberate and focused on what I wanted um, and what I needed to provide for my own family. I'm, I'm so grateful to my parents. As you grow older, there's a lot of love and a lot of forgiveness for things that they did or didn't do. But I, all I have is gratitude for my parents for what they did for us. That sounds like a wonderful childhood. Most times, I think most times it was. <laughs> Coming to high school, did you have a plan of action? Did you kind of have an ambition that I want to be this or I want to really pursue that career? That's a, that's a great question because... <laughs> 
I always have a plan. And everybody says this, you know, you make plan and God laughs. I was very clear, you know, I had my Excel spreadsheet about what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it and how I was going to do it. And it's really interesting. You know, I worked that plan and I achieved all those things I wanted to do but not in the order that I had thought I was going to do. I was going to graduate college, move to New York City and work in New York City with my friends, apply to med school, you know, have a family like in my 30s and then go that way. And it's just not what happened. I graduated from college and and walked down the aisle and got married and started having a family. And, you know, things I did all the things I wanted to do. I worked, you know, in New York City, but I was older and um, probably got to enjoy it more. I worked at Pfizer, 42nd and 3rd. For many years. And um, I probably enjoyed it more because I actually had money to be in the city, right? But I, I think it's really important to always have a plan. So at a young age, a lot of people told me the things I wanted to do, I wouldn't be able to do. However, at school, however, my parents never made me feel like I couldn't accomplish anything I wanted to do. I never knew that there was a glass ceiling because my parents didn't allow me to think like that. So I think that that was probably one of the harshest lessons to me. It was that it wasn't always easy and there was a glass ceiling. But again, my parents instilled in me that anything I wanted to do, I could do regardless of gender, regardless of where I was from or whatever, as long as I worked hard and was always educating myself. So when you asked me if I had a plan, I had a very clear plan. Um, How that plan evolved is i probably been in school my whole entire life. I did realize pretty quickly I didn't want to go to med school. Um, I wanted to do more. I went to undergraduate school. I worked three jobs to put myself through school. And when I got into med school, I got pregnant. I had to make some trade-off decisions. Did I really want to be a doctor or was I being a doctor because my parents? And, you know, of course, most families, they want their, their kids to do well. And that was always an aspiration my parents had for me. And I realized I would have been miserable in a direct care setting. Quickly had some really wonderful mentors at the University of South Carolina and the med school at South Carolina, Gene Reeder. He's he's a professor emeritus and he's the founder of the AMCP. He really mentored me. He wanted me to go into pharma much earlier than I did. I thought that pharma was kind of the dark side because I'm really a public helper. My being is I believe in giving back and um, I thought that pharma was big bad pharma. And I realized when I finally went into it, I said, oh, I wish I had done this 10 years earlier. I would have been in the, in the industry even longer because I think that anybody can do any role in pharma. And I think I love it because of that. You get great training, you get education. You know, they paid for a lot of my postgraduate education at Ivy League schools and such. And I was able to work in medical and sales and marketing and market access for 30 years. I've had this incredible experience and career. And I don't know that other industries would allow all of that without you paying for it and being in debt. And I, you know, I, I took a lot of different roles in my career. I had plans that I wanted to do X, Y, or Z. And everybody would say, well, you know, the, the career path to get where you want to get to be a CEO, you have to do this, this, and that. And it's very interesting. I made different decisions and I call them pivots in my career. And it all makes sense now looking back. But when I was going through it, people were scratching their heads. Why is she going from, you know, advisor with pills and capsules into biologics? You know, why would she do that? And it just taught me a whole different part of the business or why would she go into device or why would she be a big pharma and then go to a device startup? And and I'll say that all those experiences really have set me for success, right? In my career, no regrets for any of it. Have loved each of those pieces of my plan, whether they were planned at that time or not. You know, now I'm at this point and I think I've always been there that I didn't have a lot of people mentor me. So when the people people did do that, I was so grateful for it that I, I spent a lot of time 
time doing that for others. Anyone just asks me, I will get on the phone with them. I'll help them. I'll connect them if I'm not the right person or don't have that guidance because I really didn't have a lot of that. And I'm so grateful for the people that took chances on me and saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. Right. And, and I think that's important in life is, is to have audacious goals and to also, you know, be okay and be uncomfortable with choices you make and just, and then get comfortable, right? You just do it. And I think too many people want to have this, this, and this, and this done. And I did too, before I could do the next thing. And I think women in particular really struggle. They want to, you know, a job comes open, they're saying, you know, the qualifications are X, Y, and Z. And they're like, well, I'm not going to apply until I have this many years in this or that, or this or that to check the box. And you know, I, I watched my career earlier in my career, I was watching all these men get promoted so fast and like, you know, 12 months, 18 months. And I, I couldn't figure out what was I doing wrong? Was I not? Because I grew up again from a first generation family, you worked hard, you were recognized and therefore you'd be promoted. And what I found, and I had someone mentor me on this, they said, you know, the problem is you become people's right hand. And then if you leave, everything's going to fall apart. So it was a really valuable insight for me that I had to develop others to take my job, taking responsibility for your career. That lesson I learned very late in my career. I mean, I was in my mid thirties, maybe that's not late, but it was for me. I, I wish I had known when I was in my twenties. And what I find now is when young people come to me, I'm so excited to help them and, and I'll connect them with many people, right? I, I'm doing that right now for a young girl that graduated from a very good university and she works in an endocrinologist's office, had worked for a vet, and she's done all this stuff, and she's trying to break into pharma. And I'm looking at her resume saying, I would love to have this person who's so industrious, et cetera, but she doesn't realize that she's qualified and how she's qualified and how she can position herself to be successful. So I've connected her with all these different people, VPs of sales, to help coach her and get her ready. We, we, we call it charm school. A bunch of my friends and I, we, we all get together and we'll help anyone, right? As long as people are open to being helped. And, you know, that's with their resume and also, you know, drilling them on how to interview and how to respond to questions in a very authentic, real way. Because I think people want to be perfect. And I think that's the other thing about having a plan is that it's not going to go perfectly, never does. <laughs> So and true. that's a, probably the best part is being resilient and then going with it. Once you make a decision, just make it and go for it. And sometimes they'll work out, sometimes they won't, but it's always a learning. Yeah, no, and, and that's such a great idea. You know, a bunch of you and your friends are trying to help all these young women. Such a great initiative. So I have so many questions now coming off of this. <laughs> I'll ask them in order. First one, you talked about mentors, that you didn't have a lot of mentors. What kind of mentors did you have? that really made an impression on you? And what kind of a mentor do you aspire to be? I would say that there's a great quote from Benjamin Disraeli, and it says, the greatest gift you can give another is to reveal to them their own. And I think that greatest mentors I've had has see, have seen something in me that I didn't realize I had or could do. And, and I'd say most of them were male, and most of them I helped a lot in their careers, you know, and have stayed in close contact with them. Because again, I work in an industry and I worked in an area that was all all male. I was usually the only woman in the room. And so those mentors were so precious to me, especially the ones that really, truly gave feedback. And I, I like to use a lot of quotes, but one of them is I tell everybody feedback's a gift. And what I think happens in careers, especially early on, it's very hard to give feedback, constructive and otherwise, right? And so people don't know how they're really perceived. And so I always say this, probably the best mentorship I got was really to understand what is the real impression of you versus what you think people think, because it's usually not what you think, like, you know, you deliver or you, you know, 
get it done. I was, I was known as get it done. I mean, anything someone threw at me, I just get it done. And I had to figure out how do I get it from get it done to that next level is, oh, she's so strategic. And it really took planning and it really took people that could give me the insights on how to demonstrate that. Even if I felt like I was all those things, it was, it were those mentors that really took the time to talk to me and, and have me ask the right questions. I mean, I think that's the other piece of it is asking the hard questions. Like, so what am I not seeing? You know, what is the real impression of me and what do I need to demonstrate to be perceived to be ready for something else? Because the other thing I found out with mentors, which is really hard for me, is that when a job became open, they usually already had it filled before you even applied for it, right? Because they're thinking you need people to sit in a room and be thinking about you for a role before it's even posted. And and which blew my mind, you know, and maybe that was very naive of me. But um, over the years, I've really challenged people to do that type of talent review, except I, I don't think I would say that I got any job, especially even at higher levels, because I was well in advance known. I use usually a wild card and someone then they would interview me and then they would realize, oh, this is what we need. Or, you know, this is the I've actually never interviewed for a job. I haven't been offered the job. And I'd say that in the past 25 years, I've never been turned down for a job or I might not have taken it, but it's, it's a very interesting place to be, to be very deliberate about it. And I think that from what I've learned the most is to be able to help someone see what they don't see in themselves as a strength, but also what could be, you know, one of the things I love about millennials is they're very audacious, which I love, but it can also be cocky, right? Like in, because they don't have a, and again, I'm generalizing here, but the younger generation, it's a piece of pride for me that they feel like they can do anything and they're not afraid to try it, even if they don't have the experience, but they also have a bit of this brashness about them, which sometimes I miss. Because I, I remember when I felt that way, I hopefully didn't express it, but I, I would, I remember thinking, boy, I could jo- do that job a whole lot better. Why did they give it to that person? Right? Yeah. I mean, I would think that. And then realize that all those years of experience and all those hundreds of launches and line extensions and and, um, challenges in your career also make you more seasoned and make you more valuable, right? And I I think that you you asked directly, what have you learned the most? And to me is that people are the most important asset and finding people, mentoring them and growing them, you will have a team of trust, whether they're in your organization or outside for the rest of your life. And I think that um, not enough people take the time to stop and really get to know people and really understand who they are at a basic level. Like, how did you grow up? How was your career progression? You know, what did you do? And you, when you, when you actually get to understand what that history and then what motivates someone and what they really want to do. But I have an icebreaker I love to do, and I've been doing it for years with teams. I always ask if you had no money, if you had no money challenges at all, what would you do? What is your dream retirement job if money was not an obstacle? And it's really, really interesting what people say. And you get really deep insight about who someone really is because of that. And as long as you can understand those uniqueness, and then you can help people achieve that. That's such a great question. And and it's interesting you ask because I've always seen this lady water the plants in the office. You know, it's in the middle of the workday. She has no worry. She's listening to music, just watering her plants. I wanted to do that, but I've always felt, you know, I'm not ready for that. Yet. Well, do you know what my retirement job was? Probably not now, but it always was was I wanted to be the person at Walmart that gave you the happy stickers because I always thought those people were the happiest people, right? And it was no stress and they're just giving you, they're spreading joy and happiness, which I thought was great. 
And I laugh about it, but I think it's an important question to ask people and to have them think about. And again, for the over the past 20 years, I've done this exercise with every leadership team I've had where they they share, who are you? What was your career progression? What motivates you? And, you know, what do you want to do, you know, the next 5, 10, 15 years? And a lot of people don't think about that. So what your original question you asked me was about planning. I, I think it's really important to have a sketch or an aspiration of where you want to be in your career. It's okay to change that. It's okay for that roadmap to change. But unless you have that, you're not going to get where you want to get. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I want to be the boss or I want to be a CEO, but then they don't understand what it takes to get there and, and understanding what are those key skills and tasks you need to have, but also what are those other leadership skills you need to have, right? Yeah. And that becomes critically important. Um, another question coming off of your previous answer was you mentioned, you know, you have done marketing, you have done market access, and you kind of went to pharma much later. So if you had to divide your career into different chapters, three or four chapters, what would they be? And how did each of those kind of morph into the next one and help you get better at your job in the next phase? The first set of the career, I'll call it phase one, is becoming an expert in something. You know, I, I think that when you look back on a career or someone is at a, at a top level in their career, you usually associate them, oh, they're, they're a finance person or, oh, they were a marketer or, oh, they were this or that. And, you know, my first phase, I would say, would be the market access piece, which I believe is the whole market, by the way, in, in, in pharma and everything else. It's what Why should someone pay for your drug? What is what is the value of it? And, and really, what is, the, what is the cost trade-off value of a drug? And why should I pay for it? And answering that. So the, I would say the first part of that career is figuring out what is your expertise in your base. And I think so many people in their career go through these phases and they're following a career ladder instead of doing the lattice and doing all those cross experiences. And if they go up too fast and miss something, they really can't go back because they're too high of a level. So I, I think that phase one was was figuring out what what was I as a core, a core, what is my core? You know, I'm a chemist, I'm a, a political science person, I'm a healthcare person. And I think that first phase was, I know what I want to be in healthcare. Then is it, do I want to treat someone? Do I want to create the guidelines? Do I want to make sure the drugs are paid for? Or do I want to do, do I want to launch them? What is it that I knew I wanted to be in healthcare, but I got a lot of different experiences to figure out even did I want to be in pharma? Because my view of what pharma was, was just sales rep. And I thought that was terrible. That's not something I'd ever want to do. Like, I mean, as a, at a junior level, I was thinking I want to be, a, I'm a strategist. You know, I want to figure out these health economic things. I want to do the math. I want to figure out, you know, how are you going to win here and be able to make products accessible to people? So that was phase one, figure out what your base expertise is. Phase number two for me was really going from being a doer to a manager, right? Like being an expert in whatever that function, it doesn't even matter what your function is, right? But that you're really good at it. You're an expert in it. And I thought for a long time, I had to be an expert at every job I did. And what I figured out was that the phase two was that being a doer and being really good doer and in, in delivering is important. You have to do that in the phase two. But then that transition to phase three, being able to, you're not the smartest person in the room. You don't know everything. And and you can't do everybody's job, but you're really good at finding those people and understanding those people, motivating those people, retaining them and getting greatness out of them. And then the last phase of my career, I would say, is not just delivering profits 
delivering, you know, to patients, which is most important, doing it in a compliant way. But to me, it's really helping other people be successful. I, I think that's the the fourth part of the career. I mean, I think it's, you know, you realize whatever the pinnacle of your career is, you make good money, you know, you retire, you could be retired. What brings me the most joy is is really finding the talent and evolving it and helping them discover themselves. I mean, back to that quote I gave you about the greatest gift you can give others is to reveal to them their own. So I, I think that's how I mark up the four phases of a career. It's kind of funny. It almost goes full circle. And that's kind of where I am. Looking back, are there certain values that you really held close? You know, you were the first generation. Hard work definitely stands out. You have to work hard for what you want. Any other values that you still hold true and maybe you passed on to your kids? Well, I, I think a couple of things. I mean, always lead with integrity and authenticity. That's one of the first things I'll say is I think integrity is everything. And I think that in this industry, many for many years, I was coached to be more like a man. But because I was a woman, and you really can't do that because then the standards aren't the same for a woman in a man's environment. And, and we all know this, right? And I had to get really comfortable about who I was because I was coached to be like a man. And then you're like that. And then they're like, well, she's too direct or she's too this or she's too that, where they never say that about a man. And I had to figure out that balance because your goal is not to just get stuff done. It's to get stuff done and that you can achieve and accomplish things, but you can grow the people you're with. I feel like there's not any challenge that could be presented that I couldn't assemble the right team to deal with. And that's behaviors as well as expertise, right? Like I, I just, and I, I think that's the big learning, right? That's the big learning, the aha for everyone. If, you, if you're not a good teammate, and that's when I say one plus one is four instead of one plus one is two, or one plus one sometimes is one, depending on some, if someone micromanages. Anyway, that's that's my view on it. If you had to go back and do something different, what would that one thing be? I, I knew you were going to ask me this question. And I, I, I want to, I really want to say to you, there's nothing I would change. And I don't think there is anything I'd change, but there is one career move that I did that that I look back and say, what would have happened if I didn't do it? And I'll and I'll share I'll share with you. I may have shared with you this before. My husband came to work where I was working. We had been in the same industry together. The team loved him. They asked if they could interview him. He was interviewed for a role. I was a top performer. I was in a special um, training class with the CEO of this company I worked for, and um, in an incubator, innovative team, you know, and doing all this top performer, getting paid out bonuses in, which was wonderful, by the way. And he, he had the same background as me and almost the same education. And he went in the interview and he came home and he had this look on his face and he knew how hard I'd worked and everything else. And I said, please tell me you didn't embarrass me and not get the job. And he said, no, no, I got the job. And he hands me the letter. He goes, but I can't take it. And I read the letter and they offered him at the time, 50% more than I was making. And it was, it was quite a, it was a shock to him and it was a shock to me. And that was one of the moments, you know, we have four kids. I, and he knows how hard I work. I'm, I'm a, I work 24 seven and, you know, fully committed and vacations and all this. And he, he, he was so upset by it. And it was such an aha for him. He literally said, I'm not taking the job. I said, well, don't be short-sighted. You should take the job. It's good money. Um, but I wrote a resignation letter and I sent the resignation letter to my boss. And then of course, quickly they figured out, I'm like, Oh, and HR didn't realize that, you know, he's going to come home and show me this. And they quickly matched and increased and gave me a promotion, all this stuff. But I almost wish I hadn't have done that because that was the first time I realized I thought I was doing really great financially. And it was the first time I really realized that there was such an inequity and a gender gap in pay. And this was an unknown out of industry, coming into industry. And my husband's a great guy. He deserves everything. He's, but it was such clear inequity. 
I don't even know what else to call it. And and I always look back and say, what would have happened? Another part of the industry offered me a job to go to a higher level um, in HUR. And my the boss that this happened with convinced me to stay, apologize, all these things, right? I did all these things. And that's the only, it's not a regret, but I always think about what would have happened if I didn't do that. And after that happened to me, I absolutely, once I resigned, I never looked back. It didn't matter for what job ever. So that was my big lesson that I learned. But again, no regrets because if I didn't do it, I wouldn't understand the importance of it. That is so true. And a lot of times when we have these focus groups, we hear women saying, you know, I have a comfort zone. Everybody likes me. I like everybody. For some reason, women tend to really value the team dynamics a lot more than their own personal gain and their own career options sometimes to their own detriment. I have an offer, but I don't want to take it. Not because it's a great offer, not because it's a promotion, but just because I don't want to leave my team. A lot of times I hear coaches say, you know, don't worry about who you're leaving behind because you can still be friends with them. But if you have career ambitions, you have to take the opportunities that present themselves. I, I had a mentor tell me at, at the C-suite level when I got up into the, so so my first VP probably was about 15 years ago level. And um, really interestingly, the feedback she gave me, she said, you know, to be a woman and to, if you want to accelerate your career to where I've, I've gotten to, you have to start looking for a job every 18 months. And I'm one of these people that grew up in an immigrant home, right? So you worked at one company almost your whole life. I mean, that's what you did. And I did come from that mentality. And I do think that the new generation, the thing I like about it too, and don't like about it, is there's not a lot of loyalty to an organization. They do shift around more because they know they're valued more. There's something important about that. There is an important message. There's also an important message about longevity, about staying with jobs. And I do think people jump more now, which I don't care for. And I don't care for it for myself either. But I will tell you, I wouldn't have progressed in my career if I hadn't financially as well as love. I mean, it's something I had to accept. And this person who told me this, I thought, oh, it's, I can't believe this person's telling me this. It's terrible. But they were, they were right, especially as a woman. They were, they were absolutely right. So as a woman, you've seen a lot of people work for you, you work with, are there certain traits that you think hold women back and what should we do about it? The biggest trait that holds women back is thinking they have to have all the boxes checked before they can apply for a job or be qualified for a job. I don't think there's a perfect candidate, male, female, or anything else for, for every job. You, you just need to absolutely understand what value you bring. And sometimes it's just a mindset, right? Because no one expects you to be experienced in everything. Who, who would have expected that we'd go through a pandemic? And I think that the skills that are needed to lead in a pandemic are very different than traditionally, you know, in, a, in an office with Brooks Brothers suits and all the Talbot suits that we wore. I was just talking to someone about this earlier, is that that was the biggest switch when I went from big pharma to biotech. I, I think I shared this with you my first like couple of weeks in, they said, do you own sneakers? And after that, I, I wore chucks to the office and jeans every day. But I, you know, I grew up in the Pfizer way and the Santa Fe way of doing things where I was wearing very nice Louboutins and very nice suits every day. It's just what it was, you know, understanding that all that didn't matter. It doesn't, you know, it's business casual or, or whatever. It's just a different world. But you know, it's funny because I watch these worlds do this too. There are different times you have to float between the world. Um, but again, and lots of good learnings there. And again, being authentic to yourself, not, you know, just accepting where you are and, and what you bring to the table, what you don't. Because I'm always like, if I don't have a piece of the puzzle that someone's looking for, I'm always like, listen, but I can buy, rent or steal that that talent. I don't need to have all those talents. And I think that was that big switch to that first fourth phase is that I'm probably the best 
my best skill is identifying talent and retaining it, by the way, recruiting and retaining it. All the problems come and go and you can be successful that way financially and obviously have had some great career highlights doing that. Um, and we'll continue to have those, hopefully. I always say God willing. But, you know, it's just what it is what it is. But that's the best part. Like if you're able to retain talent and especially in this day and age, it is so hard. Retention is the biggest issue every company is having. So if you are that kind of a leader who can retain, that means people trust you, they're loyal to you, they like your style, and they believe you have their best interest. That's so awesome. Yeah, and I think I think that most people not only want that, they want to provide that, but I just think that the corporate environment doesn't always foster that. And so you have to be creative on how you do that, but people need to people crave that, right? They crave people that can trust them and value them. And when you have that, quite frankly, dealing with problems, all that other stuff goes out, goes to the wayside. You're not fighting over certain things. And I see that a lot. And in my career, I've watched it. And then I've also seen it is that I think working in larger organizations, you really see where things are inefficient and that people are jockeying for position or people or whatever. And that's where I think the ego has to be put to the side and really focus on delivering whatever it is, whether you have hundreds of people working. I've, in my career, I've had actually thousands of people work for me and only a few people work for me. I mean, I've kind of gone both and I love leading teams. It's something I love doing, but I value more being able to have that type of team that endures whether I'm there or not because of this environment you've set up. I know time just flies, but any final last comments for our listeners, get it? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest biggest piece of feedback that I'll give that I wish that I understood a lot of these things earlier in my career. And don't be afraid to ask. And I, I say it to my kids all the time, if you don't ASK, you don't G-E-T. And people want to help people, whether it's a man or a woman, it doesn't really matter gender or anything else. I find leaders and organizations want to help others excel. And even having a, I call it a coffee clutch, or even being able to just spend a little time talking about this is where my career is, this is where I want to be. You know, what did you learn? You know, what are those learnings? People want to help you. Be careful about what you ask for because you may get it, right? The feedback, but take it and always be blessed that, that you were given it. And genuinely make sure you're authentic to yourself. And again, continue to ask for what you need. Know the difference between mentorship because there are times you need mentorship and that can be episodic. And when you need sponsorship. And again, that was something I didn't really understand till I was, you know, deeper into my career. Wish I had learned that earlier. And people want to help you. I mean, I don't know if anyone asks you, I don't know how you feel about this, but if anyone asks you for help, don't you want to help them? Absolutely. And then don't you feel vested in helping them? I mean, I get more joy out of watching people excel than anything else, right? And delivering business results, right? You can do that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Garrett. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.